Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Josephine Garris was born in Ohio in 1839, but she was raised in Indiana. She had a modest life growing up, but flowing through her veins was the knack for inventing, literally. Her father, John, was a civil engineer, and her grandfather invented the first patented steamboat in the U.S. Although little is known about her upbringing, we do know that Josephine eventually married a man named William Cochran in October of 1858. William had gone off to California to try his luck with the gold rush, but returned home empty-handed the year before he and Josephine tied the knot. He eventually became a successful merchant and a politician within the Democratic Party. And they had two daughters named Hallie and Catherine. William's fortune continued to grow, and in 1870, the family moved into a sizable home just outside of Chicago. It was perfectly suited for hosting dinner parties with other members of the city's elites, but there were two big problems that Josephine still faced, even with all that money. First, her husband had a nasty drinking problem, and it was affecting their family life. And second, despite her elevated status, she was still in charge of cleaning up after each get-together. After one dinner party, Josephine was in the kitchen washing dishes when she noticed something. Some of them were chipped. There was an inescapable problem of hand-washing them. Some of them got dropped or were knocked against other cups or plates and wound up losing pieces. Plus, she hated being relegated to the kitchen to clean up at the end of the night. She was sure other housewives hated it too, so she got to thinking. Sadly, in 1883, William passed away after losing his long battle with alcoholism, leaving the widowed Josephine with his hefty debts, which she needed to pay off. So she got to work. She converted the shed in her backyard into a workshop where she started tinkering on her new invention. She also got a local mechanic named George Butters to help her. With George's technical know-how, Josephine was able to construct a prototype of her new machine, which she called the Cochrane Dishwasher. She filed a patent for it in December of 1885. Others had tried to automate the dishwashing process in the past. A man named Joel Houghton had been among the first with his wooden version that he cranked by hand. It was a popular idea, and someone else tried again 15 years later with another model that used a hand crank. But Josephine's was something revolutionary. She had measured every plate, cup, fork, knife, and spoon, so they each had a perfectly sized home in her machine. Once filled, the compartments rotated around a copper boiler with help from a motor as the dishes were blasted with suds from below. And unlike other designs that used harsh brushes to get the dishes clean, Josephine's version used hot pressurized water to do the trick. 
just like today's modern dishwashers. Unfortunately, Josephine had put her cart before the horse, so to speak. She was so busy trying to get her invention off the ground, she didn't consider its cost to produce. Her machine retailed for as much as $100, and that was too rich for most people. Plus, few were able to supply it with enough hot water to get those dishes clean. So, Josephine and her new company decided to market it to larger entities instead, like restaurants and hotels. She was a single woman running her own business at a time when most women were tending to their homes. But after her debut at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893, none of that mattered. While other companies folded due to the economic depression that had occurred that year, Josephine was able to sell her dishwasher to businesses in need of a way to mass clean their cookware. She and George opened a factory in 1898, capturing the entire American market, north to south and east to west. But she didn't get to see the dishwasher's adoption in households all over the world. Josephine died in 1913 when she was 74 years old, but her legacy lives on today. Her company was sold to mixer maker KitchenAid in 1926, which was eventually absorbed into the Whirlpool Corporation. So, the next time you load up that stainless steel box in your kitchen, you know, the one with all those buttons and dials on it, you can thank Josephine Cochran, a brilliant inventor who also hated doing the dishes. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Let's be honest for a moment. If the last few years have taught us anything, it's that Americans love a good conspiracy theory. Maybe a little too much in some cases. But as bizarre as this might sound, these outlandish theories aren't a new phenomenon. The oldest conspiracy theories in American history revolve around the Freemasons, a name that's familiar to many a National Treasure fan. The Freemasons were founded in the Middle Ages by stonemasons, but during the Enlightenment, they focused more on religious tolerance and the sciences than actual physical building projects. They're not really a secret society, although they do have their own rituals, symbols, and handshakes that would put any summer campers to shame. The Masons might have had a great deal of influence in the founding of America, from the Bill of Rights to the building of Washington, D.C. itself, 
It also helped that Masons had a history of opposing royal claims, possibly helping to move the revolution along. After all, when a bunch of wealthy white men get together to discuss philosophy and decide they don't want to pay taxes anymore, anything is possible, right? Now, while most of this doesn't sound particularly malevolent to us, the Masons had plenty of detractors. The Catholic Church was no fan of theirs, forbidding any Catholic from becoming a Mason, which was pretty easy to enforce in a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant colonial America. Still, the secrecy of the Masons weighed on many people's minds, including Captain William Morgan of Batavia, New York. Morgan was born in Virginia and allegedly a veteran of the War of 1812, fighting directly under Andrew Jackson, although we have no one's word on this except his. Morgan spent some time in Little York, Canada, where he operated an extremely successful brewery and apparently was inducted into the Freemasons. He made no mention of those connections when a fire burned his brewery down, and he was forced to sell off most of his worldly goods to avoid debtors' prison. From Little York, he moved to Rochester, New York, then Batavia, where he became a bricklayer and stonecutter and developed an impressive drinking problem and gambling addiction. Morgan claimed that he was made a master mason, the highest level, while he was living in Canada. Although, again, there's nothing in Mason's extensive records to prove this. While he was active at a lodge in Rochester and tried to build lodges and chapters in Batavia, he was unsuccessful, and his constant badgering led to other members taking a dislike to Morgan. There were even questions about his character and maintaining his membership. When the Masons officially ousted him, Morgan soured on the organization for good, deciding that he was going to get revenge. He decided the best way to do this was to publish a tell-all about the Masons, teaming up with a local printer named David Cade Miller and two other guys to get it done. Which is how, in the summer of 1826, for a dollar a copy, you could get yourself a glimpse into the rarefied secret world of the Freemasons. For such a morally superior country, Americans certainly love a scandal, and reactions to early advertisements seem to indicate this book could be a bestseller, at least until funny things started happening around the print shop. You see, a series of fires broke out in Miller's shop that summer. Morgan blamed the Masons, accusing them of trying to silence him. The Masons blamed Morgan and his drinking problem. Next, Morgan was arrested for a series of thefts. Now, he was in dire financial straits, but even as he was released from prison after lacking of evidence of one theft, he was arrested again. An innkeeper suddenly decided to demand Morgan to pay what he was owed. Bail was posted by a mysterious benefactor on September 12th, and Morgan was promptly picked up outside the jail by an unknown group of men. He was bundled into a carriage and managed to shout, Murder! before being whisked away. William Morgan was never seen again. Well, at least not alive. In October of 1827, his body washed up on the shores of Lake Ontario and was identified by his wife, although there was always some debate about that. The investigation, which had been going on for some time, became squarely focused on the Freemasons. In response, they protested that while, yes, an independent faction did kidnap Morgan, all they did was give him $500 and set him loose in Canada, far away from all of them. They did not kill him. Several men, though, were arrested and even convicted of kidnapping, but no one was ever charged with murder. Miller followed through on his friend's vindictive final wishes and published the expose. Thanks to the disappearance, the book was a hit. In the coming decades, Freemasonry became a byword for wealthy corruption and cruelty. 
more like a cult than a philosophical society. On July 4th of 1828, citizens of Leroy, New York, published the Declaration of Independence from the Masonic Institution, and anti-Masonic movements far outstripped anything Morgan could have dreamt of. They even led to a creation of the first third party in American politics, the Anti-Masonic Party. As a result, Masonic membership in the country plummeted, and while no member of the party ever held high office, the political landscape had changed. As for William Morgan, although his murder remains unsolved, he is not forgotten. A stone column with a statue of William on top was raised as a tribute to the martyr. He faces away from the nearby cemetery, turning his back to the gravestones covered in Masonic symbols. One final jab at the community that had turned their backs on him. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.